This podcast is sponsored by Pluribus Networks. Pluribus delivers cloud networking solutions that dramatically reduce complexity and increase business velocity for enterprises and service providers in the distributed multi-cloud era. Mark your calendar for an important video broadcast event on March 16th, 2022, to see how Pluribus and NVIDIA are revolutionizing cloud networking for good. This is a can't-miss event. Sign up at pluribusnetworks.com slash cloudnetworking. That's pluribusnetworks.com slash cloudnetworking. Sponsor CBT Nuggets is IT training for IT professionals and anyone looking to build IT skills. You can sign up for a free CBT Nuggets trial. There is no credit card required to sign up, and you will have access to the entire training library. Visit cbtnuggets.com slash heavynetworking. That's cbtnuggets.com slash heavy networking. Network design for high-frequency trading and big data networks is the topic for today's heavy networking. If you're interested in what it's like to carefully manage data center latency and maintain your sanity in a zero-downtime environment, I, I do believe this is your show. Let's find out. Our guests are Jeremy Philibin and Mark Washko of Jump Trading. Mark and Jeremy, welcome to the show. Jeremy, I should say to you, I suppose, welcome back. You've been a many-time guest. Mark, this is your first time. And so as such, Mark, it's only appropriate you get the first question. I just said we're talking high-frequency trading as part of this conversation. So, Mark, define for us high-frequency trading. What are we trading, and how often is high-frequency? So I think you can almost think of it as, I don't know if you've ever seen Ferris Bueller's Day Out. There's that iconic scene where they go to the floor of the Chicago Mercantile Exchange and watch people flashing their fingers. That's essentially computers now, right? And so that's computers, trading teams, basically sending in prices and volumes on what they want to buy or sell into the market. And the exchange itself is now a data center, right? And so these exchanges run matching engines. The matching engine is just a computer program running in a data center that accepts orders from market participants at the prices they're willing to buy and sell at. And so since it's now computers doing it, and not human beings, it can be very high volume. So we're talking thousands and thousands of messages a second, trades and orders and so forth. So these exchanges exist all over the world. You can trade, for example, in India on the National Securities Exchange. You can trade in U.S. equities in Carteret, Mauwau, and Secaucus, New Jersey. A very large one is the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. The data center is in Aurora, Illinois. And so we basically connect our networks to all of those data centers and put our proprietary technology co-located at the data center with the matching engines of the exchanges. So it's all kinds of security. So if it's something with a symbol, I can trade it and that trade is going to go through potentially the jump trading network. Yeah. And land on one of many different marketplaces, many different exchanges that are able to exchange that security. Correct. We don't have customers per se. So we're a proprietary trading firm. We trade on our own behalf, on our own accounts, our own money. And so we're actually the people that when somebody wants to go to the exchange, like a natural firm, like a mutual fund or someone who wants to hedge their risk or whatever, they need somebody there at the exchange that's willing to buy and sell with them. That's us. We're always willing to buy and sell. We're just professional traders. Oh, interesting. So it's not it's not merely connectivity. You're not like just a middleman that bridges together buyers and sellers as a pass-through. You're also engaging in in trades potentially. Completely. Yes. We are not a middleman at all for really for other trades. It's just us proprietary trading on the exchanges. 
we are the buyer or the seller when we're involved, the counterparty, so to speak. Yeah. I used to work for a payment card network, uh, which was a middleman. You'd bridge merchants together with banks on the far side and the MasterCard and Visa networks and so on were all connected through us. But money would settle on us. But other than taking a fee for our services, we were not part of the transaction. We were this this connectivity middleman. That, that's not what you guys are doing. Uh, no, yeah. So that's very interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. And in that analogy, then the uh, the exchanges are the middlemen. And mm. the person who wants to buy or sell is is one side of that and we're the other side. That's exactly right. So we've got the high-frequency trading aspect. We're talking lots and lots and lots of trades, very high volume, number of trades that are happening. But there's also a big data aspect to what uh, jump trading is doing. So explain yeah. that. What do we mean? We fundamentally believe at its heart, trading is a quantitative problem. And so we have all of these data centers distributed all over the world. We have over a hundred of them. Basically any electronic market, we're going to be trading it. So we set up collectors that are just basically software processes running on servers that are collecting every piece of data you can think of about the trade. So the market data that's being published from the exchange matching engine, all of the remote signals that are coming in as well. It's a very globally connected marketplace. So commodities in the U.S. might be driving commodities in India or a financial futures contract at the Chicago Mercantile Exchange in Aurora could be driving the cash version of that in U.S. equities in New Jersey. So we collect every piece of data possible. And then we send that back over a high-speed, high-bandwidth network to our supercomputing grids where we have hundreds of petabytes of file storage that we basically open up to an army of computer scientists and quantitative mathematicians to do research on and create the next best trade, essentially. So when you're talking quant trading, I think of um, not necessarily value trading or, you know, what I think of as fundamentals trading, but more you're looking for mathematical trends in the data that indicate based on these patterns we've seen historically and based on therefore what just happened, if we make this sort of a trade, we can make some money. Correct. Yes. But Jump as a company has like progressed over the years. And so we participate in all different types of trades now. So we have obviously hold times in the high frequency space are probably like a second or less. But we also participate in trades where we might have a longer term value proposition for the course of a day or sometimes even the course over multiple days and weeks and months. As you crunch the numbers with the supercomputing grid, uh, as you mentioned, are you computing over time to come up with a new algorithm? Let's, let's say that eventually would lead to some more profit, or is it trying to get answers like right now because of things that are going on in the marketplace today? It's long-term trends and research and so forth. Yeah. Like there's not like a tight feedback loop to like, we have to have feedback immediately from our research platform that drives the future. So we're talking petabytes of data that you're working with? Yeah. There's a very large file system that we keep as much data as possible. What does the network look like then? Let's back out a, a step here because there's a couple of components we talked about. There's there's trading, there's big data, and maybe those are separate networks. But if if we could kind of get a holistic view of what the jump trading network looks like, that would be fun to hear. You hit the nail on the head, which is we have two very different requirements, right? We have the lowest possible latency so we can send these signals or these messages between exchanges and, and kind of to fire off trades. But then we also have the, here's a couple terabytes of data, send it over to a storage unit, you know, somewhere in the back office. We've built a couple different networks to solve that problem. Some very high bandwidth um, 
global wide area network, for example, you know, 100 gigabit base using uh, segment routing and and some you know, BGP and, and such to kind of offload that high data traffic off of the low latency network. And so that's 100 gigabit based, you know, very, very large bandwidths, not so latency sensitive. And then, of course, we've, we've built the, the lowest possible latency networks as well to connect these locations. So lowest latency networks to me gets into, we're talking nanoseconds. Some things are measured in nanoseconds for sure. But you care about nanoseconds, let's put it that way. The leading edge exchanges like the Chicago Mercantile Exchange and particularly Eurex, which is in Frankfurt, the Deutsche Börse Exchange, we think of things in terms of like tick to trade. The tick is the market data update that causes you to trade. And the trade is like your order going out. So we have very high fidelity timestamp packet capture systems that measure that relationship, right? And so the Eurex platform is 100% first in, first out. So on very large events, there are these races that happen. And the competitive estate right now in Eurex is in like low tens of nanos of latency of that tick to trade. Making a trade locally at a data center is that low of latency. When you get into your like wide area network in the what we would call our front office where latency matters. It's generally nanoseconds do matter um, to Jeremy's point, but a lot of times it's still in the microseconds to in mm. some circumstances milliseconds because if you need to move a piece of data, let's say from you know the Chicago Mercantile Exchange to India, that's mm-hmm. a pretty long path. Yeah. Um, so uh, you're going to be in the millisecond range. We haven't solved that speed of light issue, but if anybody has an idea, please uh, please reach out to me personally. Talk to Elon. I'm sure he's got something he's working on. Yeah. Yes. If I'm so concerned about these teeny tiny amounts of time, milliseconds on the large side, is that because the changing price of securities can impact the value of a trade or is it some other reason why it matters so much? It's as simple as it's a big competition in effect. You know, we're, we're not the only one who does what we do. And if a piece of information is published in Chicago that will cause you to make an intelligent trade in India, whoever can get that piece of information from Chicago to India first to tell their computer that's co-located in India to fire off that order, they're going to win that opportunity. And in effect, there are, I was going to say thousands, but it's probably millions of similar events per day all over the globe, you know, where you can fire a piece of information at an exchange in Japan or in Canada. All of those races matter. Worst case scenario of the network being down, this is one of those networks where you can actually measure how much money you're losing if the network is offline. Is that fair? So I've been in the industry like 15, 16 years, and there was a much more clear relationship like 15, 16 years ago to like making infrastructure improvements and seeing direct P&L impact. There clearly is impact, um, but I like to think of it as like we're baking a cake, right? Latency in the network is one critical component of that, mm. but so is a lot of other things. And, you know, to be honest with you, above all else, Jump is a very intelligent trading firm that prides itself on its quantitative ability to predict markets and respond in markets. So, you know, that's one of our core strengths. Latency clearly matters. It's one ingredient, but so is, you know, your quantitative chops. So is your trading ability. So is your your risk processing, all of your back office systems. It's a very competitive marketplace and it's really a holistic amount of ingredients that go into that cake that makes success. 
If you're forward thinking and you're in prediction markets and quant, are you also into Web3? Is that part of your world, whether that's crypto or, or blockchain, some flavor of Web3 technologies? We have a very large crypto division, and so we're actively involved in that space. The biggest thing I'm excited to see what happens here is you kind of have a colliding of two worlds. The exchanges that we trade on today, like Chicago Mercantile Exchange and Eurex, they are pretty much like the Web2 model. We pay for a service to co-locate in their data center. We pay for a service to get a cross-connect to them. We pay for a service to get market data from them. They have seen Web3. They know that it's coming. In many circumstances, like Chicago Mercantile Exchange and NASDAQ, they've signed agreements with AWS and Google to actually invoke the cloud within their matching engine platforms. They see the value of access to retail flow that Web3 has enabled. What is fascinating to see though is like, you know, we, we talked about that environment at Eurex where you could have tens of nanoseconds tick to trade latency. How does that move to the cloud? Mm. That level of predictability and performance, I don't know and I don't think the exchanges have figured out yet, how do they move their Web2 model into the Web3 world. And that's one of the great unknowns that we're going to see play out over the next couple of years. They know they need to do it, but how it happens and when it happens is a great question. Going to be a lot more direct connectivity and specialized custom-built networks, I would assume, that connect the data exchange points together. You would think, yes, within the cloud. But, you know, the cloud model doesn't really offer that today, right? Like the thing that's crazy, like getting back to that Eurex example, if you were to look at a piece of market data arriving to all the participants trading in that low latency trade, the jitter in arrival between them is less than 10 nanoseconds, right? Mm -hmm. And so you have a bunch of participants that have developed over time all of their custom software and hardware to trade those markets and that are very deterministic, right? Put that in the cloud model. Like, mm -hmm. it's very hard to see how that happens. I'm sure it will be figured out at some point in time, but I don't know. The Jump Crypto division is, is working with exchanges. We work with a lot of exchanges that are cloud-based. In fact, the, the vast majority of the crypto exchanges are cloud-based. So we're kind of learning that through how we interact with those crypto exchanges. And hopefully the, the lessons we learned through that will apply to what happens on the kind of traditional exchanges as they move into the Web3 model. And I'm sure the equinoxes of the world are going to play a role in this cross-connects and so on. Yeah. You would think, yes. Yeah. I don't know if you spent any time looking at Helium at all. Like that's another fascinating coin and also a network. It's the people's network, it's called. And so if you go to helium.com, you can check it out. It's pretty, pretty cool. There's an explorer where you can see they have like 500,000 nodes deployed globally right now. And so you can buy one of these Helium hotspots. It has a like a northbound LoRaWAN interface and a southbound mm. like connection to the internet. And so it operates under this proof of coverage model where the network issues challenges and other hotspots that witness a challenge respond to the challenge and you basically earn fractions of Helium coins by expanding the network. So you're actually incented to build the network and you prove the coverage by these challenges going out over the LoRaWAN interface. So that's an area we're excited about that stuff as well. And like mm -hmm. we're investigating, you know, deploying those nodes ourselves, And um, so that's like one example of a crypto project we're actively working on right now.
I interrupt this podcast just briefly to remind you about a March 16th, 2022 event hosted by Pluribus Networks, our sponsor today. Pluribus delivers cloud networking solutions that dramatically reduce complexity and increase business velocity for enterprises and service providers in the distributed multi-cloud era. Mark your calendar for this important video broadcast event again, March 16th, 2022, and there you will see how Pluribus and NVIDIA are revolutionizing cloud networking for good. This is a can't-miss event. Sign up at pluribusnetworks.com slash cloud networking. That's pluribusnetworks.com slash cloud networking. And now, back to the podcast. Feels like the the timing and tick to trade is going to have more to do with computing power than network time in the sense that blockchain events are not happening very quickly. They're happening very slowly. I'm just speculating here. I'm talking out loud. Tell me if I'm missing something, but it just feels like your ability to do compute and while if it's proof of work, especially on that, on the particular chain you're working with, that's going to matter more than moving data back and forth. Yeah, I think there's a huge amount of throughput challenges in Web3 that need to be solved, you know, like specifically with Ethereum and um, Solana and a lot of these. If you look at the transaction throughput of what I would call the Web2 classic exchanges like CME, Eurex, the U.S. equity markets, they can just process so much more load and transactions than the blockchain right now. That's probably the next great challenge. And one of these firms... I think will, or one of these coins or companies will will move forward and make a great leap in performance. The question is who? And I think the one that does that will change the market. That's going to be a big transformational step. Uh, the question really is who and when. Well, I want to talk about some network environment <laughs> stuff. I want to talk about, you know, speeds and feeds and switches and routers. And uh, I know some of it's going to be secret and you can't talk about it. But let's talk about one of the data center network environments. It sounds like you have multiple data centers. Is that fair? So we have what you would consider traditional data centers you know, where we store lots and lots of data, the petabytes of data we referred to earlier. And that's where the supercomputers sit. But from a traditional, you know, what's a data center? If you consider co-locations with exchanges, data centers, then we've got a lot. Like a rack of gear or multiple racks of gear maybe sitting in a variety of exchanges. For sure. Yes. We effectively co-locate with just about any exchange that we trade on. Um, so we've got equipment that sits all over the place. It's kind of one of the the weird things if you're outside of the industry and you come in and, and somebody says, well, why do you have 12 data centers in the greater New York metro area? It's like, well, that's where all the exchanes are. So you mm. kind of have to, you, you got to sign up to be on site or else you're too far away to going to make a difference in terms of trading. And when you're co-load like that, is that a pretty straightforward cookie cutter setup where maybe you got some top of rack switches, you know, 100 gig and uh, you just plug in some compute nodes and maybe a WAN router and off you go, something like that? Yeah. Yeah. Except for the WAN router. Okay. (laughs) So the the issue with the WAN router is software-based routers are very, very slow relative to the hardware-based switching. So in in almost all cases, it switches all the way down, you Mm. know. Call it a win switch and, and you're hitting the nail right on the head. Um. So if I had a big data center, I'd have um, maybe a three-stage leaf spine and I care about host port connectivity and these kind of things. It doesn't sound like you have that problem or do you? 
depends on the size of the data center. So, so yeah, our traditional data centers are the grid data centers, the supercomputing mm-hmm. data centers. Those are traditional leaf spine, you know, 400 gig uplinks between leaf and spine, often 100 gig or, you know, 25 at least down to the host devices. You know, pretty much a, a textbook leaf spine, uh, with the exception of, um, I'm, uh, well, I don't know if I want to get into tons of detail, but uh, I'm not a big eVPN fan. Um, we we write most of our applications, so we don't need as much layer two extension as, as maybe the folks who use off-the-shelf software. You're just saying you can go straight up layer three and keep it simple. Every leaf is a little subnet there, 48 ports. So let's get 48 IPs in there and call it a day, right? Keep it simple is a huge mantra for us, right? Yeah. Like everything is, there's so much other complicated things in our environment. So whenever we can keep it simple, we like to keep it simple. We don't like uh, feature creatures if we don't have to, you know? Must be a routing protocol then if we're talking layer three. Um, is that BGP or some kind of an IGP? Yeah, yeah, a lot of BGP, uh, a small amount of an IGP, OSPF, or ISIS for just the simple exchanging loopbacks. But yeah, a lot of eBGP and, uh, and, you know, we'll call it ASN sprawl, but it makes sense to us um, (laughs) from a logical assignment point of view. Um, The majority of exchanges all face off with BGP as well. So like if you were to get a cross-connect to CME, they'll basically run BGP with you to exchange routes. And then oversubscription between tiers, you mentioned 400 gig between leaf and spine tier, Jeremy, um, and, but then host ports being you know, as small as 25 gigs. That sounds like not a lot of oversubscription, maybe. You know, we try to stay away from it because, you know, we send a lot of data and we kind of saturate a lot of links. So we'll do, you know, end by 400 gig and in, in some of the newer designs, leaf to spine and try to get over subscription down into a very, very low digit, you know, one point something, two point something to one ratio. We can build so as to not drop packets. So it's just best not to build so as to not drop packets. I, I love that. That's because that, that's <laughs> super hard to actually do. Uh, so get, give me some strategy here. You mentioned saturating links. If you're saturating links, not dropping packets somewhere along the way is a difficult problem to solve. Uh, big buffers would be a way to do that, but not very desirable in a low latency environment. So yeah, how do you engineer for not dropping any packets? So the grid, it's not as bad. We can control the amount of oversubscription by deciding how many host-facing ports we want to use on a switch. You know, more, more switches, fewer hosts per switch, and we solve that problem. Drop packets are more concerning in the, you know, the, the trading networks where you know, we receive market data from, from an exchange or from many exchanges. And we want to make sure that you know, if we drop those packets, we need, to, we need to go back and get them, right? Not necessarily the individual packets, but the data. You know, I like to like, equate it to like a voiceover IP or a, you know, an IPTV where if you miss a packet or two, you've got a momentary interruption or a, you know, a little, little artifact here or there on the screen. But life moves on, right? You get the next image. In our case, we need every single packet um, or every single data point, let's say. If we didn't know that a trade happened, we might have the wrong price for, for some sort of symbol. And then we need, you know, we're, we're going to be trading on bad data. You're making a distinction between every packet versus having all the data. So is TCP even part of the equation here? I made an assumption there. Um, most of this market data comes in through multicast. Um, okay. So we receive multicast data streams and we forward them. And of course, that's UDP-based. So if we do drop a packet, there are mechanisms to go query the exchange and say, you know, I missed this sequence number. 
not of the packet, but of the data inside of the packet, if you want to think about that. We miss trade number one, two, three, four, five. Please give us that information. Yeah. So, so while we can fill in the buffer you know, or fill in the hole, filling it in late is, is a problem. That's a mi- potentially a missed opportunity. Right, right. Or even worse, like we may have an incorrect state of the world and think that, you know, this intelligent trade is intelligent, but it's based on faulty data. So yeah, yeah, missed opportunity or or kind of negative, negative expectation opportunity, let's call it, right? (laughs) So if you're getting data via multicast from a bunch of different exchanges, does that mean you've got a bunch of different multicast trees that you are simply receiving? Are you only a receiver or are you also redistributing via multicast those feeds into into your network for processing? It's all of the above. I mean, yeah. like a huge amount of what we do is innovate around that space. We think there's a bunch of of alpha that our firm can express by understanding the state of the market and expressing it as efficiently as possible over our network. It's one of the things that we kind of think sets us apart is our valuation of the network and our usage of the network. And so that's a huge area of focus for us. And there are a ton of multicast trees. Like, so many thousands of SCOMAGs in our network. And we recently, I mean, if you were to basically look at our front office network, it's 90% multicast. Mm -hmm. Um, That's our trading network. Front office is synonymous with trading. And um, we recently just went through some upgrades to increase, I forgot what we increased our uh, SCOMAG state capability to, but I think it's like in the 16,000, like doubled it from like 8,000 to 16,000 or something like that. So yeah, it's a very large globally distributed network with many different data sources. You know, if we have hundreds of data centers, you know, into, you know, a thousand plus exchanges, many of the quantitative strategies want to listen to as much as possible, right? Because one way you get smarter is by listening to more, right? What Mark was uh, alluding to is that uh, certain vendors and certain platforms you run into finite limits on the number of SCOMAGs that you can carry throughout the network. <laughs> yeah. So between that shortcoming and just the challenges of maintaining stable multicast trees with different vendors and different iterations of their NOS, can you say what vendors and NOSs you're working with? We're working with the ones everybody's heard of, right? Yeah. The Aristas, the Cisco's of the world. Um, yeah. Nothing special there. Uh, Well, we use the low latency products from those vendors for sure. But yeah, from a multicast point of view, you know, so some of those specific, let's call them hardware software combinations hit hit limits that we need to either design around or as Mark mentioned, we're we're going through kind of a a large project to upgrade to the point where where the limitation isn't isn't so severe for us. IPv4 versus IPv6. Is this a V4 only environment? Does V6 play in at all? Yeah, I haven't seen V6 since I got here, so um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, not much use case for it. I suspect, you know, maybe maybe someday a crypto exchange or somebody will say, you know, you got to connect to us at V6, but but currently all, all trading is done on IPv4. One of the interesting things to think about, when you care about every last bit of latency, serialization delay matters, the size mm-hmm. of the packets matter. And so just looking at the overhead of V6 versus the overhead of V4 you know, there is a trade-off there of like, it's a much larger header mm-hmm. than V4. So you are going to pay extra latency for it. So, you know, it's one thing that um, if you have to do it, but if you don't have to do it, then just stay at at V4. So uh, you mentioned segment routing somewhere along the way in this conversation. I think, uh, Jeremy, you mentioned that near the top of the show. So speaking about headers and uh, 
well, not serialization delay so much, but I mean, you know, header sizes are smaller there. You're doing a tag stack uh, instead of what SRV6 would look like, which would be uh, qu quite a beefy header. Uh, so even, even compressed, it can be sizable. Uh, so I suppose if you're going to use segment routing, that SRMPLS is going to be more desirable. Yeah, yeah, you got it. So we we do SRMPLS for kind of global, we call it the back office WAN or the latency insensitive. I'm trying to get that term to catch on in the inside of the company. I, don't, I might be the only one who still says it. But for the things that we can offload, let's get it out of the way, right? Because uh, the challenge is if you got to send a lot of data across the same link, right? And you want to prioritize low latency data. The easiest way to do that is to just get the latency insensitive traffic off of it. Right, send it along a different path. So what you're saying is identify the traffic as something I don't need to care about on this network with very low latency. Let's peel it off and following a segment routing path, send it around the outside and uh, not, not yeah. drive it through the core. Yeah, up up to the satellites and back down. So <laughs> virtually, yeah. we don't we don't use uh, <laughs> yeah. nobody uses uh, satellite links anymore, right? <laughs> uh, but yeah, effectively, like send it send it off of the low latency plane of the network and onto the big bandwidth back office network and kind of deliver it that way. Which means we've we've built this global wide area network, you know, you know, MPLS, uh, well, SR MPLS based, and and we use that to to deliver traffic kind of out of, I don't want to call it out of band, but. Yeah, I know what you're saying though. Yeah. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, back in the day, you might've engineered a special backup network for your, your network. This is the network segment that only handles backup traffic just to get it off the main route before segment routing was a thing. Uh, so do you have a, a, maybe a PCE controller or something that's helping to define paths? Uh, no, we use uh, just strict BGP-based routing and, you know, SRMPLS is the control plane. We haven't had the need, at least thus far, to kind of engineer paths any more specifically than that. Just kind of to get it to that network is sufficient and then let it deliver it over the, the lowest latency or the shortest path. Yeah, you're not having to make too many decisions about changing network environments where you want a controller actively ingesting what's going on in the network and making policy-based decisions and such. Right. Yeah. Right. I think the next step, if we did want to do that, would be some manual effort, you know, building candidate paths and, and kind of mapping traffic across that global 100 gig WAN. And then if, if, if it becomes cumbersome and large, then, then we can look at some sort of PCE. Mm. But I'm kind of, kind of hoping we get, we stop short of that to keep <laughs> the complexity down. Back to the question about buffers, uh, big versus small, and what that does to your latency and so on. Do you look for switches that have big buffers for some definition of big buffers? I guess I don't know how we exactly describe that, but is that a key feature to you or do you actually look for the opposite? When we think about buffers, you know, I think we almost like bifurcate the network, like our access to the exchange, we don't want any buffering in there. In many circumstances, we're doing layer one cross point switches, right? And trying to stay everything cut through. When we go internal into our network, we're okay with buffers. We like buffers. There's always a trade-off of, you know, of the latency of the switch versus how big of a buffer you go. So in like our back office network, Buffering is a primary concern in our front office network. It's a concern, but a secondary concern because we still would like to keep the latency of the switch platform as, as low as possible. And there aren't really many high buffer, low latent switches out there on the market. So it's a trade-off and like what works. And then especially since 90% of our traffic is multicast, 
the buffering architecture for certain switches is very important with regards to multicast replication. And so we're, we spend a lot of time when we go to market with vendors doing packet walkthroughs and asking about the switching architecture of new platforms and how things get buffered and, and uh, multicast replication and so forth. We pause today's podcast discussion for training talk with heavy networking sponsor, CBT Nuggets. I care about IT training because it's been a big part of my IT career since I started going all the way back to 95. I began my IT infrastructure journey learning Novell stuff. And over the years, training's never stopped for me because sometimes I'm going for cert. Sometimes I just need to get a better handle on something new, but I am always learning something to deliver the best networks that I can. As you research your own training needs, consider CBT Nuggets. CBT Nugget specializes in training for networking, cloud, and security. They cover other material too, but they have an especially huge library of training material for Cisco, AWS, Juniper, Linux, Microsoft, and VMware. Thousands of videos, thousands of hours of content, which, which is not meant to scare you. It's okay. You don't have to watch them all at once. Just know that what you need is there when you need it. For example, all of you that are getting into network automation now, CBT Nuggets offers Cisco DevNet Associate and DevNet Professional Training. I have been reviewing the DevNet Blueprint material from Cisco. I can tell you, you are going to want training to get through these programs and make the most of them. DevNet material, it's not like learning a new routing protocol. It's learning how to manage infrastructure as code. And if you're a traditional ops person, that's really what I am. It's a whole new way of thinking. There's so much more than DevNet training there at CBT Nuggets. I've spent some time with the interface, digging through the catalog. It's easy to navigate. I sampled several videos. The audio and the video quality are excellent, and the instructors are easy to understand. They are personal, and they are engaging. They are not formal and boring, and some some of them even wear a cowboy hat. Besides the training itself, there is a great support system to help you get a handle on the material with virtual labs and accountability coaching. Now is a great time to sign up for CBT Nuggets. Visit cbtnuggets.com slash heavy networking to take advantage of their seven days free trial offer. Try it for a week. See if you like it. Commit if you do. Cancel if you don't. Seems fair. cbtnuggets.com slash heavy networking for seven days free. That's cbtnuggets.com slash heavy networking. And now back to the podcast I so rudely interrupted. Ooh, explain that to me. So if I am a multicast speaker and I need to replicate a multicast packet out multiple ports, how does time in buffer potentially impact that? Well, you could end up in a situation where you have a slow consumer. There are some architectures where a slow consumer could cause buffer resource utilization that you don't want to have, right? You know, I, I've seen in my career like situations where you know, there was a certain switch platform where if you had a bunch of 10 gig connections in a certain a buffer environment and you put a one gig consumer in there, mm. that one gig consumer just can't keep up with the drain rate of these 10 gig feeds that are coming in. And so the buffer builds up and eventually you drop. And so you would see drops though in that entire little buffer segment. So even though two ports that are both at 10 gig are fine and can send data to each other, they still have to go through that buffer architecture and they could end up dropping because of that slow, single slow consumer in there. So when you end up with congestion like that, where a buffer is filling because of, well, contention or, you know, overflow, that kind of thing, is there a QoS scheme that is helpful here? In that specific instance, there's not much you can do because it's, it's that head of line blocking where everyone's got to wait for the shared bus in effect. 
generally QoS and multicast and unicast and switch platforms. There is, a, it feels like every switch is a unique beast when it comes to that. Um, the, the specifications documents are super clear on how unicast works in a one gig to one gig or 10 gig to 10 gig or 10 gig to one gig. But at best you find a footnote that says, you know, multicast is different. You got to really dig deep to figure out the impact of multicast on that. So in, in terms of quality of service, um, it tends not to be that helpful in an environment of mixed unicast and multicast because there's usually switch architecture, like design choices that were made by the vendors or even the, you know, the Broadcom chipset that affects whether whether you can even kind of prioritize packets in that instance. You're talking about the ASIC specifically, what cues are built into that ASIC and then what arbitration options you even have to put packets in a specific queue, dequeue them, all of that. And uh, yeah, what, uh, what's interesting is, you know, um, and I know you have deep experience with Cisco switching, so I'm not going to tell you something you don't know, but there's a, a generic set of features that are available in NXOS, right? For example, to do QoS. But what that actually does at the ASIC level is very highly dependent on which ASIC is in that particular yes. switch. And yeah. NXOS, you know, the, even, even in modern NXOS, there's probably... I don't know. Off the top of my head, I could think of six to eight different ASICs that it can run. And if I thought harder, I could probably triple that number. Go back um, in time far enough. There's certainly more. Yeah. Yeah. And each one has a subtly different implementation of the same QoS features that you put at the, the NXOS level. So, yeah, that's something that, that we have to do at that jump. And I'm sure, you know, our competitors as well to understand these switches down at that level. So, so fixed config switches or chassis switches with line cards? There's very little difference between a chassis switch and a leaf spine architecture. It's effectively, uh, you know, a one power supply and a bunch of different switches. Building our own chassis, if we need the scale, is the way to do it, which means building leaf spine or, or multi-tier switch architectures. You, you get more finite or deterministic behavior, let me call it. In other words, a fixed configuration switch with, you know, you, you're not dealing with some kind of a, a fabric or whatever weird crossbar architecture in the back of this chassis that there's, there's a zillion flavors of that too that you got to contend with. I assumed you were going to say fixed config. I think you'd rather route over a control plane than over a back plane, right? Yeah, yes. Yeah, you know. <laughs> Uh, I mean, there there are exceptions to that. I, I don't want to get too deep into the InfiniBand world because I yep. don't like getting too deep in the InfiniBand world personally. <laughs> but we have those as well for the, some of the supercomputer stuff that we do. Um, a lot of that technology is kind of built with the assumption that you're using InfiniBand and therefore you kind of have to. You mentioned you're using the vendors we, we've all heard of. Cisco and Arista were mentioned specifically. Is anything in the white box world interesting to you guys? I don't have a great answer for you, except that um, in effect, the white box world uses the same switch chips and ASICs that Cisco and Arista use. So that's really the logic of what I'm asking about. So, okay, you can buy a Broadcom switch. It's it's going to be a cheaper buy potentially for the hardware. And then you throw a NOS on it that you like for some definition of a NOS that you like. So is that compelling or is it more important to have a relationship with Cisco and Arista, who's got engineers that can understand this stuff deeply and understand questions you might have. I think you hit the nail on the head on that one. And it, a lot of it comes down to our multicast behavior, that it is so unique. Like there aren't many like natural large customers 
or verticals out there that consume multicast like we do, right? And so having a vendor partner that can drive that and help support that is very important to us. You're not buying switches in such volume that saving a few bucks on, you know, white box plus a NOS is especially interesting. Completely. We'd rather, we'd like to outsource the NOS, right? With support. You know what I'm saying? That's one of the reasons why we buy off the shelf from a vendor. How do you make network changes on this thing? I mean, either environment, either the big data environment or the trading environment. If you got to make a hardware change or do a NOS upgrade or something, that sounds like a nightmare. How do you do it? We do have redundancy. This network's pretty important. So we, we always have a pair. And uh, fortunately, because of the way markets work, you kind of get a daily maintenance window, which is kind of crazy. I know I used to live in a world where, in a corporate world, where my maintenance window was Sunday morning from 4 a.m. to, to 8 a.m. or something. <laughs> yes, and uh, yes. I'd queue up changes all week long and then yeah. wake up at three in the morning to get ready and, and fire off a bunch of changes and consecutively once a week at best, you know, and then we had change freeze weekends and everything else. In the trading world, you kind of get this little window at the end of the working day where, where most markets are closed. The New York Stock Exchange stops at 4 p.m. Eastern, right? The, uh, the I think Chicago Mercantile Exchange stops at 4.30 uh, Central and, and on and on. So you get this little window at the end of the day where you can make some changes. It actually aligns really well with the pace at which companies like Jump works, where, you know, if we had to queue everything up for once a week, I mean, one, there would be dozens of concurrent changes at that one window, which would be insane and, and almost impossible to sort through. Um, but also, you know, the, the pace of innovation would be so slow to, mm. to have 50-ish maintenance windows a year. Um, so, so we are kind of fortunate that literally the markets, you know, mm. uh, are in our favor here and, and let us, let us do some work daily. And how often we change is a sign of our nimbleness. So we're incented to change and, you know, and we want a culture where failure is okay. To your point, Jeremy, I've worked at banks before where, you know, you have to go to change advisory board to change an interface description on a, on a switch or something like that, right? I got and then, denied by a change advisory board at a bank to make a description change because there was some completely unrelated change happening at the same time in a completely different data center. And oh, well, we, that's that's too risky for us. Like, I just, I just really want to <laughs> yes. get this done. I just want to get it yes. done. Yes. So that's not us at all. We're common sense. And it's about like, hey, if your change doesn't work and you back it out and there's no impact, cool. That's awesome. What'd you learn? How do we get better next time? Mm. Like that's kind of our approach. We want people making changes and just being smart about it. Well, are you queuing up changes as like an automation pipeline infrastructure as code sort of an approach? Or is it, I know what I need to do. Here it is sitting in my text file and I'm going to log into the thing and, you know, type it by hand. We have both. You know, so like we have some things that are just, you know, it, it depends on the state of our automation. We spend a lot of time building out automation. Like we have a automated system that we call jump configuration management or JCM that we try to queue some changes up in. And we have like a Jenkins pipeline that mm-hmm. will push things out. But then it depends on how much of our infrastructure have we moved into that pipeline. And some changes are just so complicated. It can be multidisciplinary and you need to coordinate with multiple people. Okay, I got a question about monitoring the network there. Do you have a, a beautiful network operations center or something, or I don't know, Grafana dashboard? How do you monitor what's going on in the network? And, and what are the key things you're monitoring? On the core, like counter-based stuff, we have a collection framework where we're hitting 
you know, REST endpoints or, you know, a CLI collector, like a lot of that stuff is wrapped in Python and Go. Uh, and then we put that into an Influx DB that we, you know, can visualize with Grafana, or we uh, also have a ClickHouse database, like a time series database we put stuff into that we're moving more and more into that uh, time series database so we can like cross-reference that against everything else. And we have a custom in-house alerting dashboard that that stuff feeds upstream into. Is SNMP interesting as a telemetry source? Because you didn't say that. You said you're gathering data via these other methods. I think we'll do it if we have to. Mm -hmm. Right. So like we generally don't pull SNMP unless we absolutely have to, you know, it just depends on the network operating system and what, what counters are available that we need. But yeah, we'd prefer not to. What I see inside of jump in terms of automation and, and especially on the management side is light years ahead of what I've seen elsewhere. Um, I mean, we have, we have a dedicated team of more than several individuals whose full-time responsibility is just to build these tools and maintain these tools um, so that we can extract this data from the network. And, and yeah, to your point, Ethan, you know, we're, we're well beyond SNMP here mm-hmm. to do real-time you know, streaming telemetry and and pulling data, basically streaming data to our tools. Um, so yeah, we're not we're not polling. I'm not surprised you said that because of the real time aspect of it. You know, polling. You know, even once a minute, which would be aggressive for by SNMP standards. Oh yeah, that's too late as far as information that might be relevant to you as far as the health of the network and what's yeah. going on yeah. and you know figuring out problems and why did we have extra latency at this moment in time and so on. You wouldn't have the granularity. That's the biggest challenge we face with the size of the data set, the volume of traffic is getting that granularity. When a loss event does happen, there's a huge microburst. You need to look at the milliseconds level because that's you know essentially how big your buffer is on a switch. Mm-hmm. So if you're polling on a on a minute interval, hey, this interface looks great, man. <laughs> yeah, on, on average, over the last five minutes, right? We uh, we didn't we shouldn't have dropped the packet, but yes, how we did. Yeah. <laughs> You know what's been interesting to me about this conversation? It's this vibe that the network is a really big deal. You're talking about how the network, it makes you money as a company. Yeah, but it's like the guts of the company live in the network here. You, you know what I'm saying? Does that does that make sense, Jeremy? Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's unique in my career. You know, I, I've worked at some of the largest companies out there, the General Electrics and such of the world. And I mean, we had really big networks, but the network was a cost center. Right. It was a means to an end to, to develop, you know, I don't know, locomotive engines or or whatever it is, you know, that, that conglomerates do nowadays. At Jump, the network is literally the, the lifeblood of of how we connect exchanges. If if we mm-hmm. couldn't connect them with a the network, then you know, nothing that we do could happen. It's special, you know, to work in an environment where what you do day to day has a direct impact on the success of the company, not just driving down the cost, but, you know, building new things because they, they meet the requirements better than the last thing. I don't know. I, it's why I made the change to, to come over to jump after years of, uh, of, of doing other things. So. Yeah. So speaking of making the change, if anybody out there is interested in working at a company where the network matters tremendously, we're always excited to talk to people who are passionate about networking, about technology, and want to make a difference. What if this conversation scares the people? They're like, I got to know deep knowledge about switch architecture, and I got to know multicast and QoS and automation. We really love hiring technologists that just love technology and are passionate about it. And we have this phrase here, it's just continuous learning. Mm -hmm. It's impossible to know everything. 
anybody who says they know everything is knows nothing, right? So like, it's more about your approach and show us examples of how you learn and what excites you and where your passions are. And let's get you working on something where we can align your passions to what Jump needs. Mark, I see your title is a head of networks at Jump Trading. Can people reach out to you if they're maybe interested in, uh, you know, being that smart technologist that is the next hire at Jump Trading? Yeah, definitely. They can reach out to me on email at mwashko at jumptrading.com, or they can hit me up on LinkedIn mm-hmm. um, and message me there. Yeah. And uh, Jeremy, are you are you active socially these days? Are people follow you? Are you still blogging? Yeah, I'm, uh, I still have a blog, which hasn't been updated since I uh, well made this change. And I'm active on Twitter, though, at jphilibin. So you can always reach me there and, and LinkedIn. And, and my email address is jphilibin at jumptrading as well, jumptrading.com, that is. Um, but yeah, reach out if you have questions, if you want to just uh, discuss this or if you're interested in jump. Excellent. Uh, Mark Washko, Jeremy Philbin, thank you for being guests on Heavy Networking today. And and, and Jeremy, we've known each other a long time. Thanks for bringing this conversation to my attention. I think you pinged me in Slack DM and said, hey, I'm doing this cool thing. You want to talk about it? And I was like, yes. So thank you for bringing a great conversation to Heavy Networking. Much appreciated. And uh, thanks to you out there for listening. I am Ethan Banks at EC Banks on Twitter and EthanCBanks.com. And of course, uh, PacketPushers.net. And if you got value from this episode, you like listening to conversations like this and you'd like more of them, well, we have a Slack group too. There's a Packet Pushers Slack group at PacketPushers.net slash Slack. It's free. You're going to be joining around 2,000 IT engineers, networking and cloud nerds, especially from literally all over the world. And again, PacketPushers.net slash Slack to sign up for that. And when you do, pop into the jobs channel. Um, There are opportunities posted there. If you're looking for a career change, there's no charge for that, but there's people that are looking for opportunities. Things get posted there. And uh, people like Mark that might have a position they're trying to fill sometimes post in there as well. Something, again, free. Just keep your eye out on it. And if you're going, dude, I don't do Slack. Uh, Okay, well, we had a newsletter, packetpushers.net slash newsletter. Human infrastructure magazine is what we call it. We send it out weekly, and we're trying to make you a better engineer by sharing good stuff about career, performing complex technical tasks, IT news that we think you might be affected by, and our heavily curated quick takes on vendor announcements. I know vendor announcements, they're kind of lame sometimes. So that's why we curate them heavily. So we're only percolating up the things we think you might care about. Last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.